Hello again, and welcome to episode four of the CarvaCast podcast. This is a weekly podcast and initiative of the Carva Project. Just to remind you, the goal of the podcast is to engage with Christian faculty in higher education and highlight their work, their scholarship, teaching, and service to bridge those connections between university, church, and society. My name is Penina Achayo Laker, and I'm here with my most esteemed co-host, John Inazu. We are both faculty at Washington University in St. Louis and fellows with the Carver Project. And today, we are really excited and honored to spend some time with, ooh, my new co-teacher now, uh, Heidi Kolk. Heidi, welcome to the CarverCast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, Heidi, it's great to have you. And Penny, can I just say that that was an amazing introduction? It just gets better every time. And I think it's the case that we owe our former student and friend Meredith Liu some great thanks because we're going to retrofit a little musical jingle. And so when you're listening to this podcast, that intro is going to just sound super professional. And we just have it all in one package now. So great job, everyone. Thank you. Welcome, Heidi, assistant professor in the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Arts and assistant vice provost for assessment in the office of the provost here at Washington University. And we're delighted to have another one of our fellow Carver Project faculty with us on this podcast and to hear and learn more about your work and teaching and passions, uh, co-teaching with Penina and uh, other Mm -hmm. initiatives. Uh, So uh, co-host, do you want to take it away? Yes. Uh, So Heidi, just to get us started so our audience can get to know you a little bit better, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little background um, into how you came to be a cultural historian and just fall in love with history and all that good stuff. So just, you know, your education and how you got there. You bet. Thank you. Uh, so I began my academic journey uh, as a student in art and poetry. Um, and I really thought that I was going to be a, a, a poet uh, for, for the four years of college, especially. Uh, and so I, um, I, I pursued a double major in English and fine arts. Uh, and I also took courses in a variety of fields uh, across the humanities. Uh, I, I had a sort of voracious appetite for learning in different disciplines and learning how different disciplines were structured, sort of how, how their frameworks and their um, structures of knowledge um, evolved and um, what kinds of questions they asked. So I was sort of uh, the in my element at, at a liberal arts college. Um, and when I stepped into a graduate program in literature, I found that uh, I was a little bit uh, cramped, let's say, by the disciplinary orthodoxies of the field. And I very quickly uh, began to seek opportunities to cross-train in, in fields outside of, of that discipline. So I took courses in anthropology and um, in, in political theory. I, uh, I started conversations with folks in, in fields way outside of my own. Um, and over time, I found myself gravitating more and more to questions about culture uh, and cultural formation and making arguments that were uh, broadly 
concerned with cultural change. And, and that really seemed to suggest a, a kind of uh, a reframing of my, my research questions in terms of uh, American culture writ large, rather than literary subjects uh, within that framework. Heidi, let me jump in and just uh, say, you know, as you were going through even that part of your uh, story, I was reminded how you and I share in common this sort of, we're both kind of misfits in the university because we're constantly pushing back upon this disciplinary rigidity. And, you know, so I have my PhDs in political theory and I have a law degree, but I'm not really fully at home in either of those disciplines. And I look around the rest of the university and think, oh, there are all these other classes and areas of expertise and smart people who were trained in some other forum or venue, but really we should all be talking to each other. And unfortunately nobody is because we're all sort of mired to secondary literatures that are saying kind of the same thing in unfamiliar terms. <laughs> have, you, yeah. have you found that yeah. at all? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I found, I found that, uh, you know, almost from my first day uh, on the job as a graduate student in, in the field of literary studies that I was <laughs> rebelling against the, the, sort of implicit rules of, of the field and, and even the, the ways in which the, uh, the arguments had to be uh, devised and, and presented in publication. Um, I found that, for example, I wanted to frame questions in terms of uh, uh, transatlantic uh, movements and transformations over the course of you know, a century rather than a couple of decades, but I wasn't interested in periodization in a way that a lot of historians had defined it. And um, so almost from the very beginning, even in terms of choosing courses and so on, I was I was sort of chafing against some of those things. I didn't really think of myself as an intellectual rebel, but now when I uh, think about that pattern of, 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 I don't know, practice and behavior uh, over time, I can see that it's, you know, sort of become my modus operandi. <laughs> Uh, maybe it has to do with the fact that I grew up in a family that that was pretty uninterested in academic matters and tried to limit what I read and thought about. I, you know, when I was about fourth or fifth grade, I embarked on a self-assigned great books project uh, with the help of a neighborhood librarian. You know, I started reading um, in philosophy and anthropology and, uh, you know, Freud's interpretation of dreams. And I don't know, I, I just, all these really ambitious titles that I thought sounded um, like they were important. And my mom started, um, uh, let's say, censoring my reading uh, out of a concern that came from, uh, you know, her her background in uh, in the Baptist church and a sense that, that this was, was uh, perhaps not the way the fifth grader should spend her time. <laughs> um, and, and I think that growing up in a, in a household where uh, intellectual questions were were sometimes um, uh, frowned upon or, or uh, gre- greeted with suspicion. I, I became kind of a, a quiet intellectual rebel. I, I sort of retreated into my corner and spent a lot of time uh, formulating questions for myself. And um, even even in high school, when I was uh, I was an art student, I was I was busy sort of pressing my teachers uh, on kind of matters of disciplinary. Um, concern and demanding that I be given permission to uh, rewrite assignments, you know, that were constraining in some way or another. I think I was kind of a pain now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> I guess, though, it's been good training for uh, for my my work in, in an art and design school where students 
almost to one uh, bring a certain kind of creative spirit and sometimes a rebelliousness to the uh, system. You know, they often are looking for ways to 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 push the boundaries of creativity and. Heidi, um, so so first of all, I I feel a little bit jealous because it seems like so far I am two in all. John, I feel like our last guest, Catherine, somehow in your past life you were also studying engineering or physics or something, and now again with Heidi, I feel like you know it's like come on, um, <laughs> it's my turn. Uh, but no, I I love I love this whole like being an intellectual rebel. I feel like I'm aspiring to be one as well. Um, and that's why I'm co-teaching with both of you. But Heidi, um, um, I, I would be interested to hear more about how that kind of mindset has prepared you to to be a teacher and, and how you sort of stumbled uh, upon teaching as a, a profession. So I think I, I probably already, I always knew that I was going to be a, a teacher of some kind. I, I think I um, I spent a lot of time writing down questions and assigning myself, uh, you know, homework and, and uh, doing the same for my younger sisters who usually didn't do the homework I gave them. But um, I think I, I think I had a kind of teacherly mentality from a pretty young age, but I, I didn't choose a field, uh, nor did I uh, commit myself to the field that I was trained in. Um, and so I guess to some degree that kind of liberal arts uh, experience that I sought out and that I'm still busy uh, cultivating to some degree, has prepared me well to teach students from a wide range of fields about how uh, questions and uh, methodologies uh, get created and what difference it makes to ask a particular kind of question um, in a particular way and, and um, you know, what the sort of hidden value assumptions and, and um, priorities are that, that, that drive different disciplines. You know, what, what is a worthy subject and a worthy question and, and uh, you know, what kind of result is, you know, merits publication and, um, you know, what's considered a, a, a contribution to knowledge. Those things are, um, are contested. They're not settled. Uh, but within the disciplines, there's often the sense that those are natural features, you know, that we all understand them and that we shouldn't ask questions about them. So I really um, have made it my business in <clears throat> teaching over the course of, of, you know, almost two decades, I guess, um, to bring students into a kind of sustained dialogue about how disciplinary frameworks uh, are, are set up and how they can think critically about them um, and what difference it makes. Uh, to affiliate with one versus another set of questions. Uh, and so that has, you know, won me friends in, in some circles, you know, uh, interdisciplinary programs. Uh, but it has also <clears throat> meant that a lot of the teaching that I do is, is sort of a collaborative process, uh, with colleagues from other fields. I have to sort of feed the role of, of lone expert and, um, and be humble about uh, you know, the way that I've been trained and what I know and what I don't know and where the boundaries lie and, and invite, you know, a kind of collaborative approach, even with students. Uh, I think my, my early years have, uh, informed that kind of pedagogical approach, 
have in, in that way. You know, Heidi, one of the, as you're talking, the idea of this sort of intellectual rebel and disrupting disciplinary norms and assumptions, there's a way in which that lens also fits well with the sometimes uneasy relationship between Christian faith and university teaching and research. And you know, here on the CarverCast, one of the things we're trying to do is to disrupt the impressions and caricatures that sometimes make Christians look like intellectual lightweights or, or in the other direction, make the university look like a place that's hostile to faith. And, and I think all of us here today are, are, are saying, no, neither of those is right. And we're trying to be uh, living examples of why that's not right. But I wonder if you might reflect a bit on how your own Christian faith and even understanding yourself as both a, a scholar and someone in the university community who's also uh, known as a Christian, how, how those tensions emerge in either your work or your teaching or just your experience in the university. Yeah. Uh, so I have to say, I, I haven't experienced the, uh, the status of Christian faculty member or Christian academic as a, as a conflicted one. Um, maybe because I, uh, I came from a fairly conservative uh, cultural and social world, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, in my childhood, uh, there were certain things that were off limits. I found the university to be a place of exploration and um, kind of enlivening uh, and stimulating conversation. And and so while I sometimes experience cognitive dissonance when somebody would espouse a, a, a point of view that that I didn't um, that didn't resonate with me uh, and uh, and do it in a way that made it sound like, uh, you know, it was a foregone uh, conclusion that we all agreed. Um, for the most part, I've, I've found it to be um, uh, kind of a, a welcome opportunity working in the university to, uh, to serve uh, community, the communities that I'm in uh, by using my, my talents and training uh, to support uh, uh, others' uh, projects and research and, and discovery process um, and um, and to some degree uh, bringing uh, the questions of my faith into the classroom not not as uh, straightforward matters of belief but in terms of uh, kind of a commitment to conversation about uh, the the priorities that drive uh, our work um, you know the the um, the sense of vocational calling that sits uh, behind uh, a given research project or a given commitment, um, and uh, and to draw students out on on their commitments. What what are their reasons for studying in a in a given field or pursuing a given project? Uh, what what values um, and assumptions um, uh, sit behind the questions they're asking? And and oftentimes that inspires a conversation about. Uh, you know, what life experience they've had, what, what, um, um, you know, challenges and, and pains they have faced in their lives and how those things inform their, uh, kind of their approach, uh, to academic study. Uh, and I've brought the same kind of openness to conversation about, uh, personal investment, um, to my own colleagues. And I have found that, you know, if I get them talking in a kind of, unguarded way about why they study what they study there's often kind of a deep uh, a deeper commitment that 
is is related in some way to um, core beliefs. And so making space for that kind of discussion, you know, that the life of the mind and the life of, of, of personal belief are not, um, you know, distinct from one another, really. Uh, and uh, if we find new ways to talk about how they're connected, uh, they could both be in play at any given time, you know, without everything becoming uh, a kind of testimonial about personal um, personal beliefs. That doesn't seem uh, to be the only the only way forward. Um, but but preserving, I guess, kind of the essence of some of those core liberal arts questions that were so important to my own uh, my own spiritual formation. I mean, I I I went to a, a college where uh, you know people made room for uh, conversations about uh, you know, doubt, uh, belief, belief and doubts and how those things, uh, connected to, uh, the questions of, that we were researching in the classroom. And, and there was, there was no kind of hand wringing about, uh, kind of where the boundaries were. It was, it, there was a sense that, um, we could make space for all of those kinds of questions. Yeah. That, the question there, mm-hmm. the, the, freedom to ask questions of doubt is so important and it's so it's so vulnerable too in a way that requires a kind of trust and one of my worries is that in a lot of our christian communities and a lot of our church environments a, a lack of trust leads to a closure of spaces to express doubts or fears or uncertainties that then gets replaced with a with a false confidence or a false fundamentalism that ultimately uh, it isn't a very sustainable faith, and I think we're seeing that play out in a lot of sort of cultural dimensions of American Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, and of course, there's there's a there's a version of that in the university as well, a kind of secularized version, if you like, that can sometimes um, come into view where. Uh, Questions of, of uncertainty or doubt are um, are are sort of silenced in in the face of uh, kind of uh, you know what are seem to be commonly held uh, perspectives or um, uh, you know attitudes that that nobody's um, articulated but that are uh, you know uh, you know let's say kind of politically progressive uh, the unstated uh, assumptions but. I have found uh, that when you make room for a conversation where <clears throat> values um, and, you know, questions of ethics and obligations uh, are part of the mix, maybe not the, the centerpiece of every conversation, but in the mix all the way through the course, that you actually um, create a, an atmosphere of trust where students divulge, so to speak, the, the personal stakes or the, the, the difficult questions um, and they become part of a kind of a, a complex set of uh, of viewpoints that are that would otherwise have been invisible um, and uh, or or kind of cloaked in a kind of common values which which uh, which aren't you know really shared in in quite the ways that people might assume. Um, in other words, there's a diversity of perspective um, mm-hmm. even within a community that looks on the surface to be. Um, homogenous in certain, you know, in certain respects, uh, in terms of life experience or class, um, identity or, um, or political perspective. Um, and, and yeah, one of the more heartening things I, I, I guess about 
what's happening in the university at this moment, and by this moment I mean this political season, is that uh, for a variety of reasons, there's actually active conversation going on about um, what it means to dignify student experiences in their fullest, uh, in, the, in the fullest sense with the, the range of, uh, you know, the, the truest diversity of perspectives. And that means um, acknowledging uh, that uh, what, what students are experiencing uh, at home or uh, as a function of, um, of, of where they come from or, or what they, um, what they've encountered already is, is, is a kind of, is an embedded part of, of, of who they are as students that we, that we have largely um, suppressed. We've pretended that it, it doesn't matter. We're our sort of all common, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we share a kind of, uh, neutral lingua franca that is, you know, um, that that we can rely on as a kind of um, uh, you know a context. Yeah, it's like an academic. It's the academic equivalent of boot camp, where we indoctrinate you into a kind of professionalizing norm that cuts against this other dimension. Yeah, right. So you know, the the what's heartening, I guess, about what what I see happening in certain programs and corners of the university is that there's now more of an active effort to to draw students uh, out into meaningful conversation about where they come from and what they believe uh, from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, of course there's that comes, that's fraught territory. It comes with the risk of, you know, performative politics and virtue signaling and all kinds of things, you know, identity uh, uh, activism and so on. But, but, um, but at its best, it, it accomplishes, um, uh, what you were alluding to a little while ago, which is this, um, that this, it, 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 it is an effort to build trust, uh, based on, um, uh, kind of shared experience and, uh, uh, an acknowledgement of who people really are, uh, and, and to bring that into the mix from the very beginning. And Heidi, what, what have you found to be just some really, um, simple, maybe strategies, um, or things that you're thinking about um, doing with your students once they return. So to sort of not only acknowledge the moment, uh, but also kind of open up that dialogue and encourage the diversity of perspective that you've talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still wrestling with the question of how to, how to do that in a way that is uh, both... Um, you know, cognizant of the of the pressures and anxieties of this moment, and and uh, also, you know, draws them out intentionally on that. You know, how to how to honor their um, uh, their state of mind, whatever it might be, and 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 to make space for people to share, but but also not to um, insist on vulner, you know, <laughs> group vulnerability. Um, if they're not ready for it. Um, I could say how I did it in the spring when we shifted to online instruction. Uh, I just made time in every class session where we were all together for uh, students to communicate about, you know, what the immediate pressures were that they were feeling. Or, you know, in the very first week, for example, I asked the question, you know, what what are you uh, lamenting? What are you, what are you missing right now about the university experience that you had 
two weeks ago or three weeks ago that you don't have anymore? What, where do you feel a sense of disconnect? And uh, I was surprised at how candid the students were. I mean, I, I had the advantage of a pretty good rapport with them to begin with, but but I would never have asked like such a touchy-feely question <laughs> um, in quite that way, uh, you know, in the classroom. Um, you know, a temperature taking kind of question, but it, it made this, it made room for a, a certain kind of candor, I guess, uh, about what the stakes were of learning in this new way or what they, what they were struggling with. And then, and of course, we didn't have to have a kind of group think about that. We could just acknowledge that those were, those were factors that everybody was wrestling with. But then individually, I could, draw them out on those things. And a lot of them confided in me about um, struggles they were having that I think they probably wouldn't have disclosed at all if, if not for, uh, for that, for my creating that occasion. So I have to figure out, you know, how to, how to do that without uh, making every course, every class session about, uh, you know, how people are doing and <laughs> kind of a therapy session. Right. Um, <laughs> And I also, I, I guess I'm also thinking hard about how to do that in relationship to course content because, you know, there's, there's, um, there's a kind of a need to acknowledge that abstract topics, uh, you know, topics that, that, that might have seemed, uh, kind of intriguing and fascinating in the, in the past, um, now seem fraught and difficult or maybe alienating now. And, um, so how to make space for, um, reactions to the material that are, uh, you know, unexpected and, and, and maybe difficult or, or the resistance even to, to being taught, <laughs> um, right now because they are distracted or they want to be out, um, protesting or they're feeling, um, afraid. You know, uh, I'm teaching this course in the fall called Living in a Material World, which is sort of a, uh, a mix of the history of of consumer capitalism and uh, a study of uh, kind of materialist and anti-materialist movements uh, over time, you know, how people have positioned themselves with respect to consumerism and um, the values of, um, of, of kind of the good life and, and material consumption. And, and I, I'm really starting to think very hard about what it means to, uh, to study uh, the history of boycotts, for example, um, going back to the abolitionist um, refusal to wear goods that were produced by slaves on plantations uh, in this moment where, uh, first of all, where political climate is, is as charged as it is. And, you know, they're all kind of immersed in, in a world where, uh, you know, virtue signaling is becoming <laughs> kind of a, an everyday uh, social media uh, feature of social media performance. Um, but also where economic and political um, turmoil are kind of a lived reality. What does it mean to, to ask a question about the the meaning and uh, value of um, of material goods or, or a particular quality of life or, uh, you know, the principles of, of um, uh, civic activism uh, in this moment and how can I foster a conversation about that that is at once historically minded and kind of driven by attention to the particulars of of specific cases and also sensitive uh, sensitive to the dynamics that uh, that we're experiencing now. That's that's 
you know, of course, something I always try to do in, to some degree, but, you know, this relevance question, like how to, how to make connections to what's happening now seems urgent and, um, and, and challenging. <laughs> now, you know, two themes that you hit on as you were describing that, uh, that I think are so important to good teaching. One is just the, the importance of improvising and, being able to flex or riff on something with with new students who might be experiencing the world very differently than the students you had five years ago. Uh, but the other, which can sometimes be in tension with that, is the recognition that it is not just a free-for-all, that you, you want to have discussions that are structured and tied to the content and the pedagogy that you are pursuing, not just, a, like you said, a therapy session. So it's, 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 it's the tension between we're not just coming here to say what's up mm-hmm. on our mind, but we're right. also recognizing that the conversation is not a packaged conversation. Sometimes we don't even know where it's going to go and we'll learn from students and we'll learn from the moment together. Yes, just exactly right. I, I think I, one advantage of having been um, uh, trained the way I have and, and spending time with people across disciplines is I've gotten really comfortable with the feeling of being, um, you know, immersed in a conversation that I don't control and, where other people's agendas are, or, you know, intellectually speaking, are, um, are, are always a factor and where I'm oftentimes, um, uh, you know, working to, uh, draw out, uh, different perspectives without controlling what happens to the, to the content as it, as it, as the discussion plays out. I mean, I guess that's, you know, an advantage of, of cross-disciplinary work generally, um, you know, getting comfortable with, with that feeling of, of maybe losing control at certain moments of the, of the narrative, but, but, but also, uh, you know, being attentive to the, uh, the underlying, um, questions and considerations. I think it's an opportunity really to raise students' consciousness about uh, approaches, methodologies, uh, and and goals. What what are they trying to accomplish in a in a study of um, you know an act of consumer activism, for example? Uh, you know, is 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 the goal to uh, to beautifully reconstruct the historical conditions under which that activism took place, and to tell tell a good story about that and get all the facts right? Um, is you know that that might be a, a an admirable um, priority, but it would leave many um, wanting to know what the kind of critical or interpretive payoff is and, and, and how we might leverage the knowledge that comes from that kind of work as we look at our own um, situation now, or, or we ask, you know, what difference it makes to exert a kind of, um, a kind of activist consciousness uh, in, in contemporary life. And that's not a question that, um, most historians would build into their courses. You know, this idea that, that you're, you're trying, uh, to solve real world problems is, is actually not, not a common feature of, um, of, of the final assignments in most, in most conventional history surveys, um, for example. But more and more, I'm, I'm creating assignments where I have students uh, pivoting from the historical case to something that's right in front of them um, and asking, you know, how they're connected in some way. You know, in our 
final minutes together, I wonder if I could ask the two of you together to talk a bit about this. I, I think calling it a course is probably too modest. This initiative, this transformation that you all are undertaking at Washington University. Um, I, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited to have you as colleagues here who are pushing us uh, to think uh, in new and important ways and would love uh, to, for, you, for both of you to share a bit about it. Absolutely. Tanita, do you want to start? Um, sure. I, I'm just here for the ride. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think, I think it, it, it's, it's great because I, um, in a lot of ways, this is a conversation we were having uh, for a while now. And actually, John, you'd be happy to hear that, you know, that, that it's uh, sort of catalyzed uh, from our low race design class that we taught in the spring, uh, specifically the the field trip that we had students take to the old courthouse where we had them really interrogate and think about um, uh, the idea of, mem of memorial memorializing and uh, official and unofficial um, marks and things like that. And and I think that, you know, when you think about uh, the Sanfok school specifically where uh, both Heidi and I sort of teach, um, we... I think we've come to a place where we really feel and understand that our city, St. Louis, is critical to our identity. And and that in a lot of ways, I think as a school, we've done a good job of having of seeing that translate through our research um, and, and teaching in, in some ways. Um, but but there really was this interesting gap where if, if St. Louis is truly critical to our identity, um, why, why aren't we making that um, more visible in our teaching and in the experience of our students? So Heidi and I, you know, given the pressures of the moment, uh, felt that it would be a great time and opportunity to put together our, a proposal for a new sort of foundational experience for our students that would um, give them the space and the opportunity to really dive into understanding the history of St. Louis, um, both the painful parts of it and, and the things that are great about the city. And specifically from a, a design and art and architecture perspective, really wrestle with um, uh, the, the, the sort of the idea of the contribution that our fields and disciplines have played in that really complex narrative. Um, and so we just really wanted to propose this experience to to sort of set the stage and, and set the tone for, for what could um, help shape some of the more robust and in-depth experiences that our students will go on to pursue throughout their time with us. Um, yeah, so Heidi, if you want to jump dive deeper, that's sort of like <laughs> what comes to mind right now. Yeah, so, so we, we also recognize that a lot of our students were craving opportunities to engage St. Louis in a very immediate way. They were um, interested in pursuing uh, projects that, that deal with the histories of neighborhoods or the displacement of people um, or, or to propose a, a kind of intervention that would somehow enhance 
community uh, or or provide some kind of support for uh, a given um, a given neighborhood or or local organization. And they but they lacked the historical um, understanding and the and the kind of formal training that would uh, help them to think about uh, what it means to do that kind of work in a in this particular city with these particular um, uh, contextual factors in play, including a kind of long history of of, of tension between the university and uh, and the community, and uh, you know, kind of a checkered history as far as uh, interventions are concerned. Um, what does it mean to in, to engage with local stories and histories uh, that that are um, brand new to you, that are not part of your experience, um, and how to do uh, to do justice to that that kind of material, that kind of content? Um, so wrestling with the questions of methodology and approach uh, and, and, and ethical uh, questions, too, that go with um, studying, uh, studying a community that has been uh, extensively studied uh, and maybe uh, is, is all the more um, sensitive and self-conscious about that fact, given uh, the, the sort of nature of uh, the tensions and um, conflicts that have um, have emerged in the last few years, and especially since um, the killing of Michael Brown. So, uh, sort of reckoning with all of those complex factors um, from the very beginning, so that the students then can go on to do more uh, sort of intentional work through the course of their four years. Uh, so, there is no such common experience right now for uh, for first year students coming into uh, the different fields in art and design and architecture, and we're hoping. That this course will be a kind of shared um, engagement uh, that ha that brings the different parts of the school together from the beginning and, and um, raises raises important questions uh, that they can then pursue. Um, yeah, I love that vision, and and of course, the two of you have also parlayed that into a Carver Project mini course for us too that that's geared toward pastors right. and ministry leaders with the same kind of material. So, home run A plus to, to both of you. Um, it's been great to talk to you. Yes. We're, we're, we're out of time. Um, so much that we've just started to unpack, um, but I know that we will continue to learn with you and from you in the years to come. And thank you for being uh, with us on this podcast. Yes, thank you so much, Heidi. Great. Well, you're so very glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity.